listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. like that's an epic trailer for a movie, so now it's my responsibility to deliver on that trailer. So there's a lot of pressure on me, I'm just saying. Well, hey, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're in the middle of a series here at Elam called The Story, and what we're learning is that scripture from Genesis to Revelation all the way through tells one continuous narrative. Now, I don't know if you know about this or if you resonate with this at all, but maybe if you've been a Christian your entire life, you know the scriptures, right? You know the stories. Maybe you've even memorized some of the Bible verses. And the truth is you can know your Bible frontwards and backwards and be able to, to even quote some important passages and be able to pull up on a map, okay, here's the Jabbok River, and uh, here's where the 12 tribes of Israel were, and here's where the Sea of Galilee is. You can spend your whole life and know how to do all of that and yet still not know what is the story of Scripture, what is it all about? Because we rarely pause to zoom out to ask, okay, what is the big picture here? And we've been learning that. We want to be able to give a response to that. So if you were ever asked the question, what is the Bible all about, you're going to be able to respond with three distinct points that we've been learning here. So would you say this with me? The Bible is the story of God's great love for us, how far we have gone from that love, and how far God was willing to go to get us back. Well, over the course of these 31 weeks together, we're going to make our way all the way through Scripture. We're on chapter 8 today, which puts us, I haven't done math in a while, about a quarter of the way through, I suppose. And the chapter title for this week is A Few Good Men and Women. We're moving really quickly. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've gone through the story. It feels like we're on a freight train, just like no brakes, right? And we're, we're headed through all of these different high points and low points of the biblical narrative. Last week, we talked about Joshua, and Joshua was the guy that, that led the Israelites into the promised land and, and ultimately uh, conquered Canaan, although he didn't do so completely, right? They didn't totally drive out all of the people that were there like they were called to do, and so they're led astray uh, by these idols. And this week, we are in the book of Judges. So what happens is you've got Moses and you've got Joshua, and then later on, there's going to be these kings. There's going to be King Saul and King David. But between that, we have this intermediate period, this period of Judges is what we call it. And if you have ever read the book of Judges, some of the most crazy stories you will ever read in the Bible are in the book of Judges. We've got Samson. We've got uh, Delilah. We've got all sorts of... We've got King Ehud. If you want to tell a good children's sermon... I'm just kidding for those of you who know that story. Uh, it's, it's there, though, and there's all of this crazy stuff because Judges is kind of a low point in Israel's history. If you were to graph out Israel's uh, moral status and, and their obedience to God's law, it's, it's never really an upward-trending graph, right? We can agree with that. But in Judges, it kind of hits a, a low point here. And what you have is you have this repeated cycle this is the way one of my professors at seminary said it. I think it's really good. He says it's A, B, C, D. 
This is the cycle that repeats itself over and over again. There's apostasy where Israel gives up you know, the, the covenant and they chase after these foreign gods and the nations around them. Then there's a battering. This is where God's judgment comes and he allows them to be carried off by these other foreign nations for a time. And then what happens? Well, Israel cries out for deliverance. We might call this repentance. And then there is deliverance where God restores them and he raises up a new judge for them. This judge saves them from the slavery of the nations around them, of the Canaanites. So, A, B, C, D, this keeps happening over and over again like a broken record. Now, one of the judges that God raises up, and some of these judges are, are better than others, but one of these judges He raises up is a guy named Gideon. Anyone here ever heard of a guy named Gideon? Gideon in the Bible. This is who we're going to double-click on. We're going to zoom in on Gideon today, and I want us to notice specifically three things about God's call on Gideon, the way God calls Gideon, because this is God's call on us too. God's call on Gideon's life involves comfort, it involves confrontation, it involves courage. Comfort, confrontation, courage. If you're a note taker, write those three points down. That's kind of where we're headed today. So number one, let's get into this. If you have your Bibles, this is going to be Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. If you have uh, your copy of the story, if you don't have one, by the way, there's a couple more out in the foyer there. They're free. Go ahead and grab a copy. It's on page 108 of the story. Judges 6, 11 through 16. We're going to be kind of all over the chapter this week, so it's not going to be one big long passage, but I'll have you rise this morning as we read through just this very first passage, and we're talking about God's call on Gideon and the comfort that comes. So Judges 6, 11 through 16, it goes like this. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would meet us here this morning, that you would open your word to us. We confess there are times when, when it is challenging, when it is difficult to understand. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here, would work through your word, would enliven our hearts, would teach us what we need to hear, would reveal things to us that we cannot see ourselves, because without you, God, this is just a closed book. So meet us here this morning, for Jesus' sake, amen. As I was doing a little bit of research for Gideon this week, I ran across an Old Testament scholar who made this insightful comment 
about Gideon. He said, Gideon is the Barney Fife of the Old Testament. You're not going to be able to get this image out of your mind. You know that, right? So like whenever you hear about Gideon, this is what you're going to hear. This is what you're going to see. So here's what he meant by that. When the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, he's doing what? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Does this strike you as a little bit odd? What do you do in a wine press? Well, you usually stomp grapes. If you're going to thresh wheat, you would do this in an open area, maybe on a hilltop where the wind would be able to separate the chaff, right? So what's Gideon doing? Well, he's hiding at this point. He's scared of the Midianites, understandably so, like they've been raiding every single year and and taking their, their crops. So he's cowering there in the valley. But he's not just fearful, he's also anxious and worried and full of doubt. I love Gideon's response to God right? Like the gall of this guy, when God tells him to do something, he's like, pardon me, my Lord, but have you really thought this through, right? Pardon me, my Lord. And he questions the angel. He says, okay, if God is with us, then why are the Midianites raiding our crops every year? Why are all these bad things happening to us? But then it gets worse. When we look at Gideon and his family tree, Gideon's from the weakest clan, from the weakest tribe in Israel. So Gideon, he kind of has a lot of strikes against him right off the bat here. Like if God is going to pick someone to marshal the troops, to get everyone going and to to lead them into battle, Gideon is probably not your guy. Like anyone besides Gideon will do just fine. Thank you very much. I mean, if you're picking teams on the the football field at recess, you don't want Gideon on your team. The guy is Bush League, Barney Fife. And yet, and this is really important, notice here, what does God call him? Mighty man. Even before Gideon has done anything, God calls him a mighty warrior. Now, Gideon is a farmer. Maybe he's never even left the tri-county area. I don't know. He probably hasn't seen a day of battle in his life. He certainly doesn't possess any of the necessary qualifications. And yet, God calls him what? A mighty warrior. Before he's done anything to, to prove that he is actually a mighty warrior. See, everything about Gideon looks pretty unmighty. But God called him mighty. Pastor Adam Barr explains it like this. In most cases, the Lord works with fearful, sinful, and selfish heroes to get the job done. See, Gideon doesn't have to earn the title mighty. Instead, God bestows that title on him, what? Free of charge. He's mighty not because of the size of his own spiritual biceps, but because of the strength of God's arm. Ephesians 2 8 through 10. Many of you may know this, this passage by heart, so just let's read this together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is God doing here? He's making us mighty through what? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let me ask you this. 
How many of you would say you're feeling pretty mighty today? I shook a few hands as we were walking through the doors, and I asked how people were doing. Nobody said, oh, pastor, I'm feeling so mighty. You wouldn't even believe how mighty I feel. But the truth here is that for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, God makes you mighty warriors before we've done anything to prove that we're mighty because we're mighty through faith in Jesus who wins the victory. We have comfort in the cross and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. See, your identity as a mighty warrior rests squarely on the shoulders of the God who loved you so much, he gave everything for you. So that's number one. God's call involves comfort. Number two, God's call also involves confrontation. God's call forces people to confront the idols in their lives. This is Israel's big sin, idolatry. If we had to boil it down to, to what they're doing wrong, it's idolatry. But it's idolatry of a very specific kind. They're not saying, we want nothing to do with Yahweh anymore, now we're going to go worship Molech. They're saying, no, 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 we'll, we'll keep this Yahweh worship, but we'll, we'll add Molech to the mix. Kind of this buffet line idea. We can just have some, some God on the side and then a, some of these gods of the, the foreign lands on the other side too. The biggest God that they worshipped was a guy named Baal, who was the single biggest threat to Israel's relationship with God. He was a storm and fertility God. But there were others like Ashtoreth and Molech and Asherah. Asherah, when you read that term in the Bible, sometimes it's talking about that, the God named Asherah or the goddess. Other times it's referring to the wooden poles that were erected to worship her. A lot of times the Canaanites worshipped at these high places, and they also worshipped at shrines and temples. And with the, the fertility cult that existed at the time, men would go to the temple and engage in intercourse with the shrine prostitutes in order to stimulate the gods into providing rain for their crops. And child sacrifice was another common practice. So this is like some really, really wicked stuff that they're into. And what does Israel do? They give in to the peer pressure, don't they? They join right in. Now, to really understand this allure, you have to remember that compared to the other nations around them, Israel was sort of a, a mom-and-pop kind of podunk operation. Not in terms of numbers, there were a lot of them, but they didn't have really any established society at the time. They were wanderers. They were nomads. So, in their eyes, the Canaanites' lifestyle is far superior on so many levels, right? Culturally, economically, technologically, they were more cosmopolitan. So, you can understand the draw. You can understand a little bit of, of that attraction. But God knew the danger. And whenever it comes to these, these foreign gods, his response to it is always unequivocal and unchanging. He says, destroy them. Destroy them. Tear them down. Get rid of them. Don't leave a single one standing because he knows, we learned this last week, that there's a battle going on, a spiritual battle for the hearts of the Israelites. And any idol left standing is going to draw them away. 
So before Gideon actually gets sent off to war, he had to do something else first. This is Judges 6.25. It says, that same night the Lord said to him, this is Gideon he's talking to, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Here it is. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Wow. God called Gideon to confrontation, didn't he? He called him to confront the idols around him and to, to tear down that Asherah pole. And not just any Asherah pole. Whose was it? His dad. The Asherah pole right in his dad's backyard. How do you think his dad felt about that? And he didn't call him to take this Asherah pole and, you know, trim it down a little bit. Maybe cut it in half so it's a little bit smaller. Relocate it over here, you know, kind of to the other side of the garden. No. He tells him what? Tear that thing up, root and branch. Eliminate it. You see, God knows that undivided loyalty to him can't happen unless we're willing to confront our nearest and dearest idols. So the question, kind of the obvious question that faces us today then, is what idol is God calling you to confront this morning? What Asherah pole is he calling you to tear down? What is the thing nearest and dearest to your heart that maybe, just maybe, is functioning like an object of worship? See, just like the Israelites failed to fully conquer the land... We fight to keep a, a, little, a little corner of our hearts to ourselves sometimes, don't we? So, so what is the thing that you care about most of all, that, that you invest all of your time, all of your energy, your blood, sweat, and tears into? What is the thing, this is another way to look at it, what is the thing that if it were gone, you wouldn't be okay anymore? However you answer that question, you're moving in the direction of pinpointing what that idol might be. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's hunting or fishing. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your comfort zone. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's school. What is the bale in your backyard God is calling you to destroy? problem with idols <clears throat> is that they do this thing where they demand everything and then give nothing in return. They leave you empty, bled out, and dry. They can't come through on the promises that they make. In fact, the result of following after idols is what? It's death because all sin leads to death and not just physical death, eternal death, and separation from God. You see, that's where idol worship ultimately takes us. God calls us to confront our idols head on, head on and to tear them out root and branch so that he can have all of our hearts because God alone has our best interests at heart. See that? So that's the second part of, of God's call on Gideon's life is, is courage. So we have comfort, or excuse me, comfort, 
and confrontation. And now we come to the third one, which is courage. God's call to Gideon involves courage. I want you to listen to Judges 7, verses 1 through 2. It's on the bottom of page 109, if you have the story. Judges 7, 1 through 2, it says, Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, can we pause right there for one minute? Because I'm not a military expert here, but why did God say he can't deliver Midian into the Israelites' hands? Gideon has too many men. Now, again, I'm not a military expert, but I assume that having more soldiers than the other team is a good thing. Seem fair? I mean, a general might complain about having insufficient supplies or not enough ammunition or not enough troops, but no one says, oh, man, I wish we could win this battle, but we have too many soldiers. Yet that's exactly what God says here. So what is he up to? <clears throat> God whittles Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 10,000. And then get this. He says, no, that's still too many. We've got to go lower. And he whittles the 10,000 down to 300. Okay? 300 Israelites versus how many of these Midianites? Anybody know? 135,000. We find this out in chapter 8. So we're not talking two to one odds, five to one odds, ten to one odds. We're talking 450 to one. Like, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I'd take a hard pass on that. So then we think, okay, well, maybe they're outnumbered, but does God have a secret weapon here or something? Well, I'm glad you asked because here it is, Judges 7, 16. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. What was their secret weapon? Trumpets, empty jars, and torches. No machine guns or mortars. Can you imagine storming Omaha Beach without a rifle? Your commander just hands you a trumpet, a jar, and a torch? Defeat seems certain, and it did with the Israelites that day too. So again, what is going on here? What is God up to? Here's the thing about God, though. He deliberately puts His people in situations where they are outnumbered to teach them to rely on Him and not on themselves. He takes weak people, puts them in overwhelming circumstances to show that he is a strong God. He takes weak people, puts them in overwhelming circumstances to show that he is a strong, loving God. See, when we are pushed beyond our own limits, that's where God actually shows up. That's where he has the biggest opportunity to show up. Have you ever heard this phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? Repeat after me. That is a lie. That is a lie. You can say it. 
That is a lie. Here's what the Apostle Paul says instead in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. Here it is. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who does what? Raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him, we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. See this? Why did this happen? So that we might, what does He say? Not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, we tend to avoid things like weakness, like the plague, don't we? We hear that word and and we kind of run the other way. But God tells us that it's precisely when we are weak that He is strong. Ultimately, God did what? He defeated an army of 135,000 with a hodgepodge of Israelites, a few trumpets, a handful of torches and jars. So imagine what He can do for you. If you are facing overwhelming circumstances today, God is calling you to be courageous. But it's a different kind of courage. It's not a courage rooted in your own strength, but in God's. It's the courage to be okay being outnumbered. That's the kind of courage He's calling us to. The courage to be okay being outnumbered. It's the courage to face those 450 to 1 odds, trusting that God is on your side and that nothing will separate you from His love in Christ Jesus. So this is God's call. It involves comfort, confrontation, and courage. And just to continue on with the the C's here, because I'm on a roll, we could add one more to that this morning. God's call involves communion. In just a few moments, we're going to gather at the Lord's table. And this is a, a celebration. I don't know if we always understand that, because sometimes I think that we view communion as this dour occasion, but it's really not. We're gathering together at the Lord's table, and this is a feast. It's a time to rejoice because we get to receive forgiveness in the body and blood of Jesus and and what He offers us here in the sacrament. It's for all who believe in Him, regardless of how ill-equipped or underqualified you may feel this morning. Because the victory is ours. All because of Christ. So if that's you today, if you recognize your own sin and your own need for a Savior, and even if your sins outnumber you 450 to 1, I invite you to come. Because the table is set, the feast is prepared, and Jesus stands ever ready to forgive. Will you come and taste and see that the Lord truly is good. Let's pray. 
Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.